That level of service issue has come up and we put it front and center in pretty much every publication we put out, the transportation sections of those publications for the last year. I mean, over the last year, it's been like this gauntlet of reports. I mean, I think I've worked on six or seven reports and we wanted to make sure each of the transportation sections that we led with active transportation, eliminating level of service as your metric for success. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Active Towns podcast, conversations about creating a culture of activity. My name is John Simmerman. I'm the founder of the Active Towns Initiative, and I'm truly honored to serve as your host each week on this podcast journey. Thank you so much for tuning in. It's always wonderful to have you along for the ride. Today is Friday, July 16th, 2021. And in this week's episode, I'm honored to share with you this conversation I recently had with Benjamin Holland, who is a senior associate with the Rocky Mountain Institute, also simply known as RMI, a leading nonprofit tackling the climate crisis primarily by focusing on its main contributor, energy production and use, which represents 70% of global greenhouse gas emissions. As you'll soon learn from Ben, RMI has also embraced the need for better urbanism, more intelligent land use, and less vehicle miles traveled, also known by the acronym VMT. And it is in this context that we discuss the fact that we need more than just the electrification of our motor vehicle fleet for us to address climate change and have a prosperous, vibrant, sustainable future. We'll need more traditional pre-World War II development patterns that support and promote walking, cycling, micromobility, and transit use. But before we roll into those discussions, please allow me this moment to once again mention that this episode is being brought to you by the generous contributions of our donors, sponsors, and monthly patrons on our Patreon page. And oh my, we have so many new listeners, thanks in large part to the last week's episode with Jason Slaughter of Not Just Bikes YouTube channel fame. Welcome. I hope you enjoy this episode as well. Now, if you do and would like to pitch in with a contribution, please head over to my website at activetowns.org and simply navigate to the donation page. However, if making a donation is not an option right now, no worries. I completely understand and I have good news. You can still help me out in a very big way by telling a friend or two about the Active Towns Initiative and this podcast. The best way to combat the NIMBYs out there is to grow our community. Thank you all so very much for tuning in and for whatever support you can send my way as I strive to grow this movement to create a culture of activity. And as always, one final reminder before we get started. If you haven't done so already, please be sure to subscribe to, rate, and review the Active Towns podcast on your preferred listening platform as this helps to connect others to this content. Thanks. Okay, let's get this conversation with Ben Holland rolling. Ben, it's wonderful to connect with you here today. Welcome to the Active Towns podcast. Thanks, John. It's a pleasure to be here. It's great to see you in person. <laughs> exactly, in person. So yeah, this is a very special episode because this is the first in-person interview for the podcast since March 2020. Yeah, and we've been trying to make it happen for a while, and here we are. Got a beautiful view right now. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, yeah. We're, we are here in Boulder, Colorado, and we'll talk a little bit about Boulder later, but 
you know, to get us started, just take a moment to tell the audience a little bit about yourself and how you came to do this work. What made you passionate about this work? Yeah, so um, I work at Rocky Mountain Institute, or RMI is what we're calling it now. And I've actually worked at RMI twice. This most recent stint has been for the past five years. Moved out to Colorado uh, to work for RMI and started on the communications team, communications and marketing. So I didn't have a background in environmental engineering or anything like that. I was living in Richmond, Virginia, which is where I'm from. And um, I lived in the fan district of the of the city, which is, um, which is kind of your classic sort of urbanist environment, corner stores and, um, kind of a, a real, a nice mix of, you know, duplexes, sixplexes, of course, single family houses, row houses, kind of that classic urbanist environment that I was used to. Yeah. Yeah. And I moved out here to Boulder for this job at RMI. Um, Boulder's a very different place than that. Much more single family homes and, uh, and, your classic kind of uh, college town in a way. But um, my work at RMI really was focused on uh, communications marketing from the beginning. I didn't get into transportation for a couple years, two or three years. I kind of gravitated toward it, though. Um, I was working with a friend of mine, Matt Matilla, on our transportation team. And at that time, we really were focused on electric vehicles, mm-hmm. how, to get the, how to get cities or how to help cities sort of embrace the arrival of electric vehicles, um, advising them on the deployment of charging infrastructure, those kinds of things. I mean, RMI is very kind of technology-centric, always has been for its 40 years. Mm -hmm. Um, But over time, I just sort of gravitated to more of the urbanist kind of uh, work. And that really happened after I moved to Austin. Mm -hmm. Um, I got involved with the CNU down in Austin, made a lot of uh, friends with people that you know, like Greg Anderson and a lot of the uh, kind of urbanist community in Austin. Right. And then through that work, really started to try to build up the non-technology side of the transportation climate right. Right. challenge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. And when you talk about the urbanist sort of view of it, 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 I think what you're heading, and I don't want to speak for you, but I think the direction you're heading is more like the traditional walkable... Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so... I think that the kind of traditional walkable biking elements of transportation are still at the heart of the environmental movement or the environmental community, whatever you want to call it, like the climate community, the big nonprofits like NRDC, RMI, WRI, a lot of those um, larger environmental nonprofits. It's a core part of it. RMI, I think traditionally, as I mentioned earlier, has been sort of focused heavily on the technology, the techno-economic case for reducing emissions. Right. So our founder, Amory Lovins, really came into um, notoriety at the time of the nuclear crisis in the 70s, and he, um, he, he wrote a paper called Soft Passive Energy and basically building the case for, the business case for energy efficiency and then ultimately re- renewable energy. So certainly very tech-focused. I have noticed in the last few years, I've kind of made it a mission of mine to elevate this gap in our work and the work in the climate community as a whole um, around the walkability, biking, things of that nature that I think have been treated as soft, if you will. Right. If you look at any kind of report on pathways to reducing emissions when it comes to transportation, Mm -hmm. it tends to... Like from the climate modeling perspective, it tends to involve 
assumptions around the uptake of electric vehicles out to 2050. Right, exactly. And it's a very simple process of like, we're just going to assume, you know, that the EVs will take over the market in a very aggressive manner. And certainly, like, there's reason to be optimistic. But what's happened, I think, as we've sort of chased some shiny objects in the climate community is that we've lost, we're, we're making really poor decisions mm-hmm. around active transportation, safe routes to schools, the foundation of good transportation planning, right. I think, is missing in discussions um, in climate policy. Yeah, and, and, and getting back to, you know, from an urbanist perspective, is you, you mentioned safe routes to schools. Well, how about appropriate siting of schools? In right. other words, you know, again, looking back towards, you know, are we just perpetuating long travel distances? Yeah you know, based on our land use decisions and, and the challenges that are there. It's, that's in, yeah, and that is actually something that we have been talking about internally. I used to work on our mobility team, mm-hmm. um, largely focused on vehicle electrification. I now work on our urban transformation team, which is kind of like our cities and states focused team. Okay. Heavy emphasis on urban environments and cities. Right. And it's kind of like we brought together this sort of it's a kind of cross-section of all of our different disciplines at RMI. So experts yeah. in renewable energy, transportation, buildings, working within the kind of urban context. And of recent, we've been talking about that school issue quite a bit. Like, yeah. Our goal right now, and I didn't mention this earlier, but RMI has recently aligned all of its work around the IPCC's 1.5 degrees Celsius carbon budget, basically limiting warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius by 2030. Yeah. And for each sector in the uh, energy system, if you will, like transportation, buildings, industry, and uh, in the electricity system, we have estimated how much emissions each of those sectors needs to reduce Mm -hmm. in the U.S. And for transportation, that's 45 percent, 45 to 50 percent. And the way we think about that is that by 2030, we would need to see 70 million EVs on the road, Mm -hmm. and we need to reduce vehicle miles traveled by 20 percent. Mm-hmm. And so most of my work is really focused on that 20% piece. Right. And of course, there's a lot of assumptions built into all of that. And, you know, when we, when we actually look at, we can use either Austin or we can use, you know, we're here in, in Boulder right now, we can use Boulder as an example. We know that a, a significant number of trips that we take in a motor vehicle are relatively short. Yeah. They're inherently bikeable distances. Sometimes they may even be walkable distances, um, but most certainly the biggest, you know, catchment of, uh, you know, capture for, for trips are, are inherently bikeable. The question is, is it safe? Is it encouraging? Mm-hmm. Is it welcoming and inviting for people to jump on, you know, their bike to right. do those trips? Yeah, and so what I've kind of, acknowledged or what I've observed recently is that there is this sense that of course yeah biking walking very important but we need technology to scale faster let cities handle that let the kind of urban planning firms handle that but what we're doing at RMI is shifting our focus back in that direction now and saying that in addition to all of those you know physical health social benefits equity benefits there's a real climate case to be made for making those investments and again i think they've been a bit overlooked sorry i just i didn't even like i didn't i didn't even really address the school thing we are in a process school 
the siting and zoning for schools is one of the many kind of issues of, how should I say this? Well, it's challenging for sure. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, especially because you, you can look at Boulder as an, an interesting example where we've, you know, this neighborhood where we're at, I can think of at least two or three older schools that, you know, were basically mothballed and, and, yeah. and shut down. And, and in some cases, they were actually converted into residential properties. But there, there is a lot of interesting dynamics. The modern version of what a school is exactly. is a much, much bigger footprint than, than what we used to have. Yeah. And, you know, it's one of the many kind of critical destinations that drive traffic that we're looking at right now. I mean, 85% of trips have nothing to do with work commutes. And I think for the most part, emissions reduction strategies, there's been such an emphasis on that work commute because it's a simple kind of chunk. Right. Um, you know, it's 50%, 15% of trips, 30% of VMT. But there are all these other things like placement of schools, corner stores, like access to food, healthy or otherwise, really. But um, there was something that Something I'll never forget was like there's an interview that Chuck Marone did with uh, James Howard Kunstler. Kunstler's always been a big kind of critic of RMIs, but he's been a big influence on me. Mm-hmm. And he said something, Chuck said something in the interview like, I'm, I'm all for advancing these technologies, reducing emissions, getting more renewable energy out there, but like, can I just get a corner store in my neighborhood? Exactly. And that's like, that's something that I think about on a regular basis and that I don't think is intuitive to a lot of people that are thinking about the environmental challenges it's like how serious of an issue that is yeah well i mean the technology stuff is is very tantalizing it's very very fun and it's exciting when you see technology going to this next level but it's really easy to get wrapped up into techno narcissism as as you know james howard kunstler would say At the end of the day, though, we, we know, and you, you, you had an article that you did with, uh, with Beth Osborne, right. the director of the Transportation for America, that talked about the fact that, it's, yeah, we need, yes, we need the electrification of the motor vehicle fleet. Okay, yeah. full stop, period. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yes, it, it needs to happen. But at the same time, so many of these other things need to be addressed. And I think you may have talked about this with Jeff, or maybe it was just in in in, in passing. And, and and Jeff that I'm referring to here is Jeff Wood with the mm-hmm. the overhead wire and and his podcast, his wonderful podcast, is the fact that just the electrification of the motor vehicle fleet doesn't address all the other pollution that's associated with those vehicles, including the particulate matter mm-hmm. from the rubber tires, including noise, because we know that as speeds increase, uh, we, we see an exponential increase in noise, so you still have the noise pollution. Yeah. So there's all sorts of other factors. Other than just climate, we also have health, because you know right. th- that pollution is, is most insidious on people who are near streets and roads Adjacent to and highways corridors. Yeah, yeah traffic corridors so there's so many other things and so you know I, I don't know if we should go into that that article at this time um but that was you know something that was kind of on my radar is is that you know yes we need that but we need this too yeah and i think i mean that article was very purposeful in the sense that i wanted rmi to kind of formally come out and say yes, we do need to 100% electrify the 
the vehicle fleet, but it's not going to be enough. And if we don't hit 70 million EVs by 2030, and that's a, we have less than 2 million EVs on the road right now. Right. So I, wait a minute, wait a minute, <laughs> stop. <laughs> Say that again. So, we need 70 million EVs and we have less than 2 million. Now. Yeah, yeah, basically, yeah. By um, 2030. The bit, you know, you can move the numbers around a little bit, but sure. just for the sake of conversation, like something equivalent, equivalent of 70 million EVs on the road by 2030. And even given that, wildly optimistic scenario, yeah. I would say, in the next nine years, we would need to reduce VMT, vehicle miles travel by 20% yeah. to stay on target. And the re, a lot of people talk about 2050, but 2030 is really important because we're baking in all these emissions. So yeah. it's not enough to just pull the projection out to 2050. So if we don't hit 70 million EVs, I think the most aggressive projection for EVs on the ground by 2030 is like 22 million or something like that. I think that's Bloomberg's. I might be wrong, but it's close enough. Yeah. We got to, yeah. we have to dramatically change the way we think about our transportation system, the way we fund it. We have to get back. We have, I think we need to take a back to basics approach in some ways. I think, you know, quite simply, we need to think about shorter trips, too. Yeah, we, exactly. You know, yeah. How, how, how do we, do we shorter trips? Yeah, we, we need to be able to, and this goes back to our land use planning, you know, types of, of discussions. And many of those things, these are long, you know, far out types of horizons of, you've been following just how difficult it is to change a land use code in the city of Austin. Yeah. And even if it was changed today, it's still years away before you really start seeing the incremental impact of these changes. And it just brings me right back to the fact of, of the data that we do have of these other trips yeah. is that there's so many of them are within easy biking distance. And I'm so glad that you mentioned, you know, the data collection of the, in the overemphasis on commute trips, because Oftentimes, that's all that's really looked at is the commuting you know, trip, and and that that commuting trip may be longer, um, but it's it's an overemphasis, and it's also a, a skewing of you know of the data because when we really you know pair back and we think about all these other trips, and I talked about this in my interview with uh, Chris and Melissa Bruntlett in their, their most recent book, Curbing Traffic, that's coming out. I just out. got that book. And you just yeah, got just that arrived. book. Fantastic. You know, we, we talked about the concept of trip chaining. And oftentimes right. it's, yeah. it, it's the females who are involved with caretaking types of trips and other types of trips. And, and they're much shorter trips, but they're also chained together. Sure. And, you know, and they brought up the point that their community, their you know, of and the way that the cities in, in in the Netherlands are sort of organized now, is that those short trips can be inherently bikeable, and yeah. they and they do that. So it's it, I think the potential is there, even you know, without all of these long horizon things that we have to do, and just like with the electrical cars, we we have to see this EV conversion. But to your point. We're a long way off, yeah. and I'm going to pull out a, a, a quote from from that article, and it's like trying to solve emissions with electric vehicles alone will leave current inequities in place. Yeah. And in reality, I would even say it's probably going to accentuate the inequities that are in place. It's it's it is a solution, but it's not the solution. Agreed. Yeah, to your point around. 
enabling shorter trips, there is a sense, and I mean, and also to your point around how difficult it is to make these changes, there is a sense that land use changes or urban design changes take too long to occur, like whether it's because you're flipping, the, you're actually building, like you're constructing buildings, or there's the political issues, like take Austin, for example, like it's been politically fraught for so long. However, I think there's reason to be optimistic about it. There was something that um, someone in Austin once said to me. He was like, I want to change the... Uh, I want to change the concept of what it means to be an environmentalist, a progressive environmentalist Mm -hmm. on city council in Austin or within Austin from the kind of traditional anti-development, that classic kind of traditional sentiment to embracing code changes or zoning changes that would enable those environments. Yeah. Um, Well, and Boulder is is another great example, too. I mean, they're going through a lot of the same types of fights. Uh, even, you know, just making it legal to be able to have more people living in a house. Yeah, you know, bedrooms and, for people. Yeah, bedrooms yeah. for people. And then as well as, you know, hey, how, how easy can you make it to have gentle density? It's not like we're saying, no, you need to, you know, tolerate and completely change the, yeah. let me re- rephrase that. I'm not saying that, you know, it's, it, we have to tolerate 20 story residential towers right next to, you know, single family homes. That gentle density concept of, hey, make it legal and easy for people to yeah. do accessory dwelling units. I mean, you can literally double the number of households just by, you know, some simple, simple tweaks, which could happen a lot faster than stuff that has a longer development time sure. horizon. You know, so little, little tweaks, I think, can have a, a, a great impact on putting more people in areas that are close to meaningful destinations exactly. and putting more of an emphasis. In, in other words, you know, doubling down on what we already know about you know, the possibility of short trips. Yeah. Yeah. So Bedrooms for People, which is um, kind of an affiliate organization of Better Boulder, which is an organization whose board I'm on, has actually just had a tremendous recent success of getting that um, policy on the ballot, the November ballot, which is essentially to allow more than three unrelated people to live in one household in Boulder. Congratulations, yeah, because it didn't cool. get on the ballot this last time. Yeah, that, all, yes. that goes to Eric Budd and yeah. some of our colleagues. Um, they, they did a mat, like amazing work. So, I mean, he's been like a tremendous force in, in city of Boulder. But uh, yeah, there's a very simple thing to, to legalize, legalize housing for people um, in existing building stock. That's a very simple solution, I think. Well, I think what's interesting, too, about, you know, this is a challenge. I mean, in the resistance that we see both, you know, in, in Austin, in Boulder, in many cities uh, uh, around, you know, the nation and really around the world is a fear. Mm-hmm. There's a fear of change. And they feel like if, if we allow these different housing types and if we get rid of this concept of zoning or we alter it to the point where, you know, quote unquote, more people can live here, that'll have a negative, you know, detrimental impact on their way of life. In reality, you know, when we think about, you know, some cities that have just wonderful 
vibrancy and density at the same time when we think of a Paris we realize that you know at four you know you know at three and four and five stories you don't even have to go right. above five stories and you can have some amazing impact in terms of getting more people closer to meaningful destinations and it's not to say that and you mentioned this you know in in your you know, intro of the difference between where you grew up and here in, in Boulder. And we're starting to see this here in Boulder, as well as in Austin, as well as in many other cities in North America. Along these major transit corridors and in these areas, we're starting to see more housing, mm -hmm. you know, going in. And, and so we're, I think you're right. I think we're on the cusp of being able to get there. Yeah. And... So how do we how do we keep this at the forefront? And I and I applaud you and I thank you for for doing this because you and I had this conversation years ago mm -hmm. about how do we keep active mobility in the narrative of, about this? It 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 can't just be about EVs and the, and and the technology. We need both. We need the we need the the fact that people need to be able to walk and bike to places. Yeah as well as we need the, the electrification of the fleet. Yeah, so I, when I was talking to Jeff, I probably oversold the, the impact of having the data, but I'm just going to echo that again where, and you know, I'm like, I'm, my head's all in the, the sort of climate community space and like what will sell, what will convince a large climate funder to fund this kind of work uh, or to pay more attention to it. And we're really trying to put, and. NRDC is doing this, Mar Martha Raskowski is doing this, some of our other colleagues are doing this. We're really trying to put some numbers down that will enable a policymaker to say, in addition to all the EV stuff that I'm doing, all the EV work that I'm doing, this bike infrastructure, these transit priority lanes, this zoning code reform, all these other interventions, we're trying to provide some numbers where they can stack those up and say, I think I could reasonably reduce vehicle traveled miles or VMT by 20% over a given period of time. Or like, I, I think I can hit X percent of emissions reductions through those interventions. That, not, that information is lacking right now. And I don't want to suggest that having data, more data available or, you know, some gold standard report is going to change all of that. But I think that will help. Well, we already know a lot about yeah. induced demand. Yeah. Yeah. And and this gets to the heart of of one of the things that you guys did with with NRDC in in terms of I think that was locally here in Denver, right? Yep. So that was in Colorado. We're going to be doing more of this because if we think about that goal of reducing VMT by twenty percent, the most important thing to do, the first thing to do, is to stop willfully increasing it right. through um, unnecessary highway expansions. You know, I mean, I'm sure there are cases where they are necessary, but by and large, we are. Um, obviously concerned about that. That is another area I think that has been overlooked in the climate community because, you know, if we just electrify all the vehicle stock, we don't have to worry about the highways expanding. But so here in Colorado, we worked with, with Martha, we worked with NRDC, as well as the Southwest Energy Efficiency Project, uh, SWEEP, uh, Matt Fromer over there. And I should say also, we built this calculator that was based on a calculator that UC Davis created, mm -hmm. uh, Jamie Volker and Su Susan Handy there. And we adapted it to Colorado roads with the basic and the average elasticity that suggests that for every, every lane, 1% increase in lane miles, mm -hmm. 
um, on a transportation system, you should expect a 1% increase in VMT. Right. And that's been vetted. There's a robust set of uh, research that backs that elasticity. And here in Colorado, we looked at the specific projects that Colorado Department of Transportation was in, was considering and found that basically we estimate that if they were to go forward, uh, we would see a 2% to 3% increase in vehicle miles traveled over the next 10 years. Right. And that's problematic because the state of Colorado has a 10% reduction in VMT goal, right. which is kind of a rare thing actually yeah. um, to see. But um, yeah, so that's the easiest target for us right now. And going forward, we'll be working with the same partners as well as Smart Growth America to, uh, to produce a 50-state calculator to allow anybody in any state in the U.S. to get a sense of what the emissions and VMT impact will be of highway expansions in their state. Right, right, yeah. And we, and we know that induced demand is a real thing. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it's been demonstrated over and over and over again. I, I would say when I first heard the term, you know, 10... 12 years ago, it wasn't well accepted at that point, yeah. but I think that, I mean, a traffic engineer must have his head in the, in the sand if they don't actually understand that term and understand that concept. So to your point, you know, if you're increasing your vehicle lanes, you know, on these highways, you're going to see an increase in VMT. Yeah. And before long, just like with the 405 in Southern California, you're going to be back to where you were, you know, previously before the expansion at in gridlock. Yeah, Katy Highway in Houston. Katy Highway yeah. in Houston. The point being is that we come back to what are we doing to invest in, you know, shorter trips, active mobility, and we've got some amazing models that we can you know, benchmark off of in terms of, you know, encouraging walking, more walking, more biking, more use of transit. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, you consider the, just a significant, I forget the number offhand, but like the significant amount of money that will be poured into enabling those highway expansions and how it could be better used, of course, for creating more walkable routes, directing more of that to urban environments rather than regional and state highway expansions. Right. Or even like here in Boulder, a subject that's been quite controversial and debated over for like, for I guess the last 15 years now is the uh, light rail line between Denver and Boulder. Sure. Um, Yeah. You could easily pay for that. The whole thing with the amount of money that's going to be poured into the highway expansions. Well, I mean, I, I remember when we, the voters, I was living in Boulder County. I was County, living here and, as well. Yeah, yeah voted uh, on it. Yeah, we voted on it, and uh, and we still do not have the extension mm-hmm. of you know that rail, that RTD rail system that was supposed to go all the way to Longmont. And uh, at the time, I was living in in Niwot, so I was like, cool, I could literally walk yeah. to this train station. So yeah. we get lost in the discussions around numbers and, and money, though, and. I mean, it really just comes down to cities and states need to really define what their values are. Yeah. What are their transportation equity values and, and to fund our system that, in, in a way that's in keeping with those values. I love that. Yeah. I, I, I love that narrative and, and that idea of the values and principles. Yeah. I mean, it's so important. I mean, you, you talked about it earlier when you, when you mentioned, you know, the climate 
initiatives and how important it is, the imperative, the urgency, the sense of urgency of dealing with climate issues and things of that nature. So getting to the principles and getting to the values, it's like, it's hard for me to like really understand especially from in in some of these cities where where we have very very progressive thought process and then to to your point when you were talking about housing resistance to to code changes and things of that nature we also see resistance to taking away travel lanes on our city streets to be able to convert over to all ages and abilities facilities, which will actually encourage more people to ride for meaningful destinations. Because what we know is that nearly 70% of our entire population, you know, if we actually had a safe and inviting environment for them, they would actually consider that trip to yep. be a, a bicycle trip. It may not be every trip and it may not be every day, but just last week I was in, you know, Indianapolis and the example that the cultural trail has there and how they were able to create truly safe and inviting environments and seeing people using that at incredibly high levels and the people that you see using the facilities are exactly the people that you want to be using. We've got workers that are using it. We've got kids that are using it. We have women that are using it with cargo bikes doing the trip chaining that we were talking about. It's right there for us. Yes. How yeah. do we get past that? Because that's, that's such a huge, huge thing. This is a, an, the question I struggle to answer. I mean, these kinds of basic livability measures or changes to urban design, whether it's street design or zoning, housing, we had an opportunity to see that just how quickly you could make those changes over the last year and a half. I mean, the whole safe streets movement, the uh, shutting down of streets. I mean, here in Boulder, I don't know what the plans are, but there's certainly uh, West Pearl remains closed for now. Right, um, right. I was just out there taking photos last night. Yeah, which has been really cool to see. And I, I know that's the case in many cities across America. I think it's given some people a vision of what it could look like. And of course, that's just a retail center. But last time I was in Austin, I was running around um, South Austin in the neighborhoods there and noticed quite a few safe route signs. I know that um, I've, I remember seeing photos from you on those. Mm -hmm. Hopefully a lot of that stays. Um, people see, I think people are given opportunity to see how just positive that might be. Yeah. And I think you're referring to the Healthy Streets um, initiatives, the post yeah, Exactly. The healthy Streets. Yeah. yeah. The Healthy Streets. Yeah. There's also this tweet that I always think about that this, act, this um, researcher out of Carnegie Mellon, Costa Samaras, mm -hmm. he's, a tra he's, he's kind of a thought leader, expert in transportation. And he's also been com com coming to this similar conclusion around the need for more urbanist solutions. Right. And they put out this, one of the one of the best papers on the pathway to reducing or pathway to zero carbon transportation that came out about a year ago, I think. But he tweeted a picture of Paris and he said, it may take us 25 years to see mainstream adoption of electric vehicles. We can do this by Labor Day. This was like a year, almost a year ago. Mm -hmm. And it was just that image of the streets closed down, all the, the cyclists riding around Paris. And, you know, of course, they have the 15 minute neighborhood, neighborhood um, initiative there. And of course, the, the, the advantage Paris has, of course, is they, they do have that 
built up yeah. you know, density already yeah, yeah. there. Their problem is that the cars are actually an insidious invader mm-hmm. to the city. So one of the interesting things about what we can do today, what we can do today is reimagine and rethink our current built environment. And you're absolutely right. The fact that the pandemic, which was just absolutely terrible in terms of the impact that it had on so many lives, but at the same time, it changed our relationships to our streets in so many neighborhoods, in so many communities. And I have to think that there is something that we can grab onto there. I do believe that there is a pent-up demand for reimagining our streets. And I hope that cities around North America, around the world, will have an easier go at it when that redefining of, of public space, our largest public realm, our, our streets, we will have a better shot at redefining. And I think we are starting to see that. I agree. And I think that bodes well for what you're talking about in terms of re-emphasizing how important it is active mobility is in that narrative of the climate change, you know, the, the goals that we're trying to, to, to hit. Yeah, yeah. And I think from the climate change perspective, I mean, I've spent most of this interview talking about reducing vehicle miles traveled, but really the the message is to improve access, improve safety, improve quality of life. And those are terms that we don't use enough, I think, in our in, in our environmental space. Yeah. Yeah. So important, too. Yeah. Ben, what have we not talked about that you want to I'm make thinking, sure that I was we mention? I thinking yeah. about that. Um, While you're thinking on that, let me, let me, let me pitch something to you. And we'll, we'll, because I love this concept of induced demand. So we talked about earlier how we know that if we in, 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 you know, increase these lane miles, we're going to induce demand. We're going to increase the number of vehicle miles traveled. As a behaviorist, I love the concept of induced demand because I just equate that to, you know, if we build it, if we build truly inviting activity assets, if we build the network for active mobility, we're going to induce that usage. We are going to see that happen. And and that's exactly what we are seeing when we look at networks that are being built. A great example, of course, is Seville, Spain, where they dropped an entire uh, all ages and abilities network in 18 months, and they saw their ridership levels go from less than 1% to now close to 10%. That's induced man. And, and I love tweaking that because, you know, it's like when we, when we think about the little things too, when we think about bike parking at our meaningful destinations, what are we doing? That means we're treating people who are using active mobility with dignity and saying, exactly. here's safe and inviting, visible bike parking. And guess what? You get the front row, you know, in, in front of this, you know, brew pub or in front of this, you know, coffee shop, we're going to take that motor vehicle parking spot away and we're going to give it to, you know, occupy 12 bikes or mobility scooters or whatever you want to use to, to get to that destination. I love that concept. I love to tweak the yeah. induced demand. Inducing demand for good. For good. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, it was interesting to see with the, the explosion of the scooters in Austin and how 
many you saw in the protected bikeways. Yeah. There. Well, because it was logical. Yeah. Now, were you there? Were you still living in Austin? I wasn't, but we were still. We still had our project down there, and I was. I was down there quite a bit, and that was quite impressive to see that. It was quite impressive, but it also really demonstrated the pent-up demand and need for safe infrastructure. Exactly. Yep. And and we really saw it during the big events like South by Southwest and we saw it, you know, at ACL. Just the number, I mean, literally thousands of people trying to get to these events. Why? Because it's impractical to try to drive to these events. Yeah. And so you have an entire population that is just, you know, inherently waiting for this to emerge. And so it was this magical combination of a new technology emerges onto the scene. You have, you know, bikeways and pathways and, and protected bike lanes that are, you know, there and, and getting better and better as time goes on. And, and they gravitate towards it. It was, it was just beautiful. Yeah. It was also interesting to contrast that with the city of Denver, which I think has um, done a lot of great work, but also has some real issues with safe routes. I mean, the streets are gridded strangely in certain parts of the city. They could do some work in expanding protected bike infrastructure, or even just bike lanes, really, for that matter. The contrast between Austin is downtown Austin and Denver was stark to me. You saw a lot of people riding on sidewalks because they were terrified to be in the street. In the areas where there were bike lanes, it flourished. But um, it was very simple to see that. And I always kind of hoped that would be... I know they, they've kind of curtailed service a little bit. I hope that that would be some kind of forcing mechanism for investing in protected, call it micromobility or bike lanes. Sure. A lot of those companies were claiming they were going to help invest in that. There has been talk recently, I've heard from like very well-known VCs thinking about innovative investment strategies for that simple measure, protected right. bike infrastructure that should be in every major city across the US. It's, a, it's such a simple thing to do, but the, the funding know. available to do it, yeah. it, it's difficult, to, I guess. I mean, Austin, it would, I mean, that was amazing. It, it, like, it was so heartwarming to see yeah. the passage of um, both of those, uh, both of those uh, referendums. Yeah. Is referendum the right word? Well, they were, remember, yeah, they were, uh, you know, Prop A and Prop B, basically. Yeah, propositions yeah. on the, the most recent election. Um, Prop A, of course, was uh, Project transit, Connect, yeah. which was the transit, and it, it basically was an increase in tax rate, which will, will generate over time, you know, in upwards of $7 billion yep. to be able to, to build out the, the transit network in, in Austin. And then, of course, uh, Prop B, which uh, then was renamed, I can't remember the full name, but it's basically the active uh, mobility or active transportation and safety bond that, you know, is going to raise, I, I can't remember the exact name, but, you know, numbers somewhere around $420 billion or million dollars. Yeah, million, yeah. not billion. <laughs> uh, to, you know, for active mobility enhancements. And, and that's not the first time. I mean, the 2016 bond and 2018 bonds in Austin also were there. The point being... Austin's not anything special. There, it's not a special situation. Cities around North America, community members around North America are starting to get serious about saying, we need to do this. We need to you know, dip into our pockets and pay for this and make it happen. It's not happening fast enough. 
you know, it's not happening as broadly as we'd like to see. But the fact that there's that momentum, I think that momentum will bring in more and more cities, you know, to be able to do that. Yeah. The other challenge, and this is one that we are really kind of targeting our sights on right now, Mm -hmm. is just the availability of federal funding to do this kind of work. I mean, we're we have been heavily influenced by like Transportation for America of recent and other similar organizations. And in the last few months, we have started to build up a U.S. kind of policy group. RMI has like traditionally not really focused on policy. We've been, again, very tech centric. Right. But we are we now have a federal policy team. And along with, you know, plenty of other organizations are already doing this. But right. from an environmental perspective, we're really focusing on how do we, and we'll see how successful this is with the infrastructure bill and the reauthorization of transportation bill, but um, directing more funds to cities, making right. more funds available instead of regional highway projects, make it available to cities to do this kind of work. You know, it's the 80-20 split that Beth Oswin always talks about. We're hammering away at that. Um, well, and to, and to jump in and channel a, a little bit of Chuck Marone into right. this, is, and, and, and he and Beth talked about this as well, is let's cut some of these strings that are attached to these federal dollars. What really these cities need to be able to do is feel that they have the empowerment to be able to, you know, move lighter, quicker, cheaper. Let's get stuff on the ground. And what typically tends to happen with our federal funding is when active mobility funding comes, it's so cumbersome to use and so cumbersome to implement that it just takes years to do right. simple projects that you know could have been done much quicker if that same allocation of money was just given without all the you know ridiculous strings attached mm-hmm. and i say ridiculous in air quotes i mean they all have legitimate reasons but the unintended consequences of those reasons mean that we are not getting you know the stuff on the ground as quickly as possible and oh by the way let's stop building more lanes for cars right because that just if we keep doing that you know the little pittance that is left over for active mobility and trans and transit it's just not going to make an impact yeah this is an area that honestly is fairly new to me is wrapping my head wrapping my head around the sort of policy implications or federal policy how the funding funnels down funding funnels down to the city level yeah because um, again you know we've been focused on different things I'm very conscious of the money that's going to flow in the next year, years to come out of these bills and where it's distributed at the city, at the state level. So I think we'll probably be doing a fair amount of state advocacy work to try to ensure that, you know, once it's in the state hands, that it goes to those those kinds of projects like or like a block grant, like a service transportation block grant goes to the right the right projects. I mean, the other issue that we have, as long as states are mitigating emissions through congestion mitigation basically like we're, we're always going to run into the same problem yeah 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 so, it, it's it's just like the engineers using you know level of service flow of traffic yeah, yeah. i mean it, it's like when i was on my bike ride today i was i was thinking about that don't ask me why that creeps into my head while i'm out on a, a recreational leisurely bike ride in in the countryside but you know, I was thinking about LOS and the level of service and how you know, traffic engineers are so incredibly focused on this. And it's all about moving vehicles through. And, you know, that's that's how, yeah. you know, the infrastructure, how the intersections that are That is graded. the value that, that they've defined. That is the defined. value that they have yeah. defined. 
we need to change that. And so I was like, wait a minute, why are we doing that? Why don't we call it level of safety or, you know, yeah. why, you know, or level of systems safety or, you know, something that really, you know, starts to look at, well, let's change the metrics. Yep. Why are we still measuring, you know, throughput of motor vehicles? Why aren't we measuring and putting some metrics to livability? And does this street, you know, create value for the community around it? Or is, you know, moving these motor vehicles through this space uh, compromising, you know, yep. the livability and vitality of these areas? Yeah, so that level of service issue has come up and we put it front and center in pretty much every publication we've put out, the transportation sections of those publications for the last year. I mean, over the last year, it's been like this gauntlet of reports. I mean, I think I've worked on six or seven reports, stimulus strategy report. Um, we put out a great report with Bloomberg uh, called Coming Back Stronger. Right. Yeah. And we wanted to make sure in ev- each of those and this was this was a departure for us, but each of the transportation sections that we led with with active transportation, you know, eliminating level of service as your as your metric for success and all those kinds of things. And we even right. had to do some an internal sort of education on what LOS was because, yeah. again, I mean, like we're still. I would say I'm still learning in this space. I mean, seeing you has been a huge influence on me. Obviously, I mentioned T4A and Smart Growth America. Yeah, in many ways, we're we're uh, kind of drafting them, you know. So. Yeah, good stuff. So based on your experience and especially, you know, the, the advances that are starting to materialize uh, just in the last, you know, couple years and, and specifically even in the last few months, for those listeners that are like inspired by, you know, our discussion today and they're like, hey, I want to make a difference in my community, in my neighborhood what advice would you have for them? How, how can they engage and make a difference in their area? It's a good question because my level of kind of community involvement, I'm fairly new to it, honestly, in the last few years. And going to Austin was very instructive to me on that, you know, like getting involved. Like, you know, it's not direct community engagement, getting involved with the CNU, but I think young people are understandably very disillusioned with national politics. Mm-hmm. And very disillusioned with national politics and I think unaware of the impact that they can make on the local level. And I mean, not even just young people. I think most people are very unaware of how much impact they can make at the local level. And that's why you go to going to Austin and being in those city council meetings was a kind of a revelation to me to see how these things play out and how much impact you can make. And that's why if you want to call them NIMBYs or that's or anti-development, anti-housing people, that's they are very effective at what they do because they know that they can make that impact. Young people just are not aware of that. And I think, again, most people aren't aware of that. And I don't think this was really this change anything. I think this was going to happen anyways, what I'm about to say, basically. But so I wrote this op-ed with Kimball Musk about like shutting down West Pearl. Mm-hmm. And I was interested. It was amazing to see. Granted, there's a big name on that op-ed, mm-hmm. but how quickly that kind of caught fire in Boulder. Mm-hmm. And then I was actively engaging city council with a couple other restaurateurs in town mm-hmm. and just sending them, sending, sending city council meet members meet uh, emails over and over again, you know, advocating essentially. And it was, it was pretty remarkable to just see it happen in real time. And I know that's happened 
across the country. I mean, the YIMBY movement is a is a really interesting example of just how effective that can be. Um, and by YIMBY, you mean? Yes, in my backyard. Yes. And I wanted to talk about this at some point, but it's been also, it's been interesting to see these different sort of subsets of the urbanist commun- community arise. And they don't all agree, they don't agree with one another on everything. Right, but right. There's a lot of diversity of thought around, uh, you know, market urbanism, Congress for the New Urbanism, YIMBY movement, you know, those kinds of things have been, it's, I think it's a good thing. There's a, there's a very, uh, very lively debate happening right now. So if I can kind of summarize where I think you were heading with that, it's, you know, the, the advice to the, the listeners that are interested in, in yeah. doing something in their neighborhood is, is get involved, you know, find, find out what's, what's happening. You find out what's going on what in do your you, neighborhood. Yeah. yeah. What, what is it that you care about most? Yeah. Chances are there's an organization in your community that's working on that. Join that organization, volunteer for that organization, join the board, whatever it is, help support that organization, help fundraise for that organization. And if that organization doesn't exist, start it yourself, you know? I mean, I think there's still plenty of places that's, I mean, every every community in America could really really use that. And I'll even go so far as to say that it it doesn't have to be an organization with a a big big O. 501c3. (laughs) It doesn't need to be that. I mean, if you can, if you can start talking with your neighbors and, and, you know, hey, if you've got more than three people in a room and you're, you're talking about things that are concerning you, you, you are de facto an organization of concerned citizens that are, you know, you know, starting to talk about these things and, and bring them forward. So good stuff Ben it's been an absolute pleasure thanks John it's been great I appreciate it thank you all so much for tuning in to episode number 83 of the Active Towns podcast I sure hope you found this discussion with Ben Holland from RMI interesting and thought provoking I for one am incredibly grateful to Ben for steadfastly bringing his passion for better urbanism land use and active mobility designs to his work at RMI. We absolutely need to see the electrification of our motor vehicles, but even more importantly, we need less total vehicle miles traveled, VMT, especially in our cities. Keep up the good work, Ben. Your efforts are indeed appreciated, my friend. Please be sure to check out those recent reports he mentioned. I've included the relevant links in the show notes, as well as out on the landing page for this episode at activetowns.org. And don't forget, if you've enjoyed this episode and appreciate my efforts to profile the inspiring advances happening around the globe to promote active living and active mobility, please help me out by making a tax-deductible contribution to Active Towns. Each and every donation is truly appreciated and really does make a huge difference in allowing me the ability to continue producing this content and growing the culture of activity movement. I've made doing so super easy. Just click on the links in the show notes or go to activetowns.org and click on the bright blue donate button or navigate to the fundraising page. Thank you all so very much for your support and for tuning in. That's all for this week's episode, so until next time, this is John signing off by wishing you much activity, health, and happiness. Cheers.